Now that you just sat down, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? From John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Would you please be seated? We're a highly educated culture, especially compared to the ancient world, when most people couldn't even read. When we consider a possible investment or a possible job or a possible spouse, we pride ourselves on fully understanding the investment, the job, or the person before we commit. We don't want to stake so much money or so much of our career or even our heart on something until we've really fully understood it. But today, I'm going to ask you to stake everything, all of this life, all of the next life, on something you do not fully understand. Let me illustrate. James Maxwell, very famous mathematician, scientist, lived in the middle of the 1800s. He's one of those rare geniuses like Isaac Newton before him and uh, Einstein after him. And he's famous for the Maxwell's equations, and all of these symbols represent some very complex math. He took some other equations and fit them together to explain how electric and magnetic waves propagate and interact and what happens when they hit objects. It's how radio waves work, how light works, that light is actually an electromagnetic wave, that all electromagnetic waves travel at the speed of light. These are four differential vector equations um, it's so complicated that most engineers and physicists, even the ones with PhDs, don't really understand them. Now, once someone asked Maxwell to define light, wanted him to use words, and Maxwell said, just, just look at the equations. But that was the problem. Only a few geniuses, really the bright, bright geniuses, really understood them, and even they could not translate what they meant into words as, as a definition of something so common as light. They could just use the equations to make some predictions and to manipulate some things. And when I studied Maxwell's equations in college, um, it was rough sledding. We mirror undergraduate students. We did a few calculations and basic things, but we didn't really understand them well. And when we complained to our professor, he just went, because he didn't really understand that well either. He shrugged. And today your pastor is going to shrug for you. I'm going to take you as far as I can into something that, like Maxwell's equations, is extremely difficult for us to understand, and then I'm going to shrug. But before I do, let me ask you something. With the great weather the last few days, have any of you been out enjoying the sunshine? Oh, yeah. What about yesterday? Anybody watch television or listen to the radio in the car or use your cell phone? 
Maxwell's equations describe the way that sunshine and your television and cell phones and radios and many, many other things work. But we don't have to deeply understand Maxwell's, Maxwell's equations to enjoy these things or to have an MRI save our life or to have an ultrasound tell us the fetus we've been waiting for is doing great. You may have already staked your life on medical technology whose design depended on someone using Maxwell's equations correctly. But you didn't have to understand that for any of these things to either enhance your life or actually maybe even, in your case, save your life. Okay, moving on toward the shrub. This summer we're looking at chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John, what scholar John Stott calls, called the heart of the Bible. And two weeks ago we looked at this beginning of the passage we just read about let not your hearts be troubled and why Jesus really doesn't want us to worry like most people worry. And we saw at least three good reasons not to worry like most people worry. We know where we're going. We know the future. Jesus is coming back to get us. He's prepared this amazing future for us. But we also know about the present that God is going to use even our painful situations for good. And then we also don't need to worry because God has given us his spirit to give us supernatural peace. It's there for the asking. Now today we're going to look at other parts of chapter 14. We're going to start with what we just read. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Would you either open an app or one of the Bibles in front of you to John chapter 14? It's on page 901. And while you're opening, I want you to just kind of remember the context. This whole scene is what's called the Last Supper. It didn't look like uh, Da Vinci's, right? It didn't look like his Last Supper. Uh, it looked much more like a table in a U-shape, and they're reclining, eating on their elbow. And uh, Jesus knows he's about to die a very painful, painful death. And the disciples have been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus has just washed their feet, which made all of them feel like a heel. Just need a little pause. Um, and then he says one of them is going to betray him. So Jesus is upset. They're upset. He says that true greatness is about being a servant. He says that true glory is about suffering, not about this triumphant conquering of enemies like they were expecting. And then he says he's leaving and they can't come and that Peter's going to deny him three times and everybody is confused and they are upset and they are worried. Then Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And we'll come back to verse 6, which is kind of controversial in our culture about Jesus being the only way. And we're going to start with verse 7, if you follow along. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me on account of the works themselves. How do you think Jesus was feeling when he said these words? I gave a hint on how I think he was feeling when he said these words. I think he was frustrated. 
For thousands of years, people have been wanting to know, what is God like? For centuries, the Jewish people have had a, a, a leg up on this because God has revealed things about him, and they've had them written down. And when God shows up and walks among them for three years, they don't recognize him. In his introductory comments in chapter 1 of this gospel, the apostle John wrote, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, Jesus is saying that seeing him, knowing him, is equivalent to seeing and knowing the Father. That his disciples ought to realize that he is loving and gracious, that he speaks the truth. See, nobody's had this pure, uh, this holy, this goodness, this beauty of character that Jesus has demonstrated to them for three years, and yet they still don't recognize him. So Jesus is frustrated. But he finally says, you know, if just knowing him isn't enough for them to realize they've gotten to know God, then at least they can believe because of all the miracles he's done where he's healed people and given the blind their sight and fed thousands and walked on water and calmed the storm and cast out demons. Why don't they realize who Jesus is? Now, if Jesus had been born in a different part of the Roman Empire, say Athens, where they worshipped lots of different gods, when he'd grown up and started doing miracles, they would have jumped up and down and said, hey, hey, there's a God. There's a God. He's right here. They would have just said, yeah, God walking among us, because they had lots of myths about that. Would have fit right in. It actually happened when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas arrived in Lystra in Acts 14. Paul healed a man that had been crippled since birth. And everybody started running around saying, the gods are among us, Hermes and Zeus. And they started trotting out the sacrificial bull to have a big barbecue. And it was all they could do to talk them out of it and tell them they weren't gods after all. So Jesus had grown up in pagan Athens and performed miracles. In that culture, they would just say, oh, yes, another god, just like the other stories that we have. But the problem was it would have been one of many and one of many who were pretty much corrupt and impure and sinful gods just taking on human characteristics, not the one true God who the angels say is truly, truly holy. But he wasn't born in Athens. He was born in Bethlehem among a very unique people that God had been grooming for this. And so the disciples, the concept of God taking on human form and walking among them was unthinkable. They'd been taught to believe that God was transcendent. Again, holy, holy, holy. Unable to have humans in his presence because of their sin. Actually angry with them oftentimes. And when Moses was on Mount Sinai, in God's presence, as the burning bush represented, it was loud with trumpets and thunder and lightning and smoke and earthquakes going on constantly. And people were God had told Moses that if Moses merely fell down first, the experience would kill Moses. That is what they thought it would be like to be in God's presence. Do you know what the first Hebrew scripture that every little Jewish boy memorized was? It's called the Shema. Shema, Mikael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one Lord. One. One God was the basis of all of their religion. And if God is one and there's one true God, how could Jesus pray to God at times and be God? How could 
a man seeing the Father and the Father and the man, how could seeing Jesus be seeing the Father? But do remember, just as Moses had that experience with God on Mount Sinai, at least Peter, James, and John had an experience on another mountain with Jesus. And Jesus was transfigured and he became this blindingly dazzling. They saw part of his glory, some of his glory. And they heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But still, if they are stubborn and they are not understanding that they have seen Jesus, they have seen the Father. Jesus is in the Father. Spirit will die and yet God bears ours. How can each be worthy of worship and we still claim to worship only one God? It's like a spiritual version of Maxwell's equations, only nobody gets them. Scholarly theologians teach all seminary students who is the God who is three in one and one in three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same nature and essence, yet three persons, and yet they don't really mean persons like we think of three people. Scholar Merrill Unger says it very well. He put it on screen. It is, admitted by, it is admitted by all who thoughtfully deal with this subject that the scripture revelation here leads us into the presence of a deep mystery and that all human attempts at expression are of necessity imperfect. The word person, it may be, is inadequate and is doubtless used often in a way that is misleading. The doctrine is to be accepted by faith in, divine, in the divine revelation, and although it is above reason and cannot be comprehended in its depth and fullness, it does not follow that it is a, opposed to reason. Thus, while it is a stumbling block to rationalism, it is for those who accept it a safeguard against all tendency to rationalism or intellectual pride. The Trinity is a mystery. Dr. Unger wrote, all human attempts at expression are of necessity imperfect. All the metaphors that I grew up with as an early Christian, people trying to explain the Trinity to me. Oh, it's like water, you know, the three phases. You've got your vapor phase, you've got your liquid phase, and you've got your ice phase. Or it's, it's like an egg. You've got the shell, you've got the yolk, you've got the white stuff. Or, or it's like an elephant and a blind man trying to grab the elephant. One grabs the tail, one grabs the leg, and one grabs the trunk, and they all... None of it does that. None of it really even helps very much. None of it really captures the essential. I literally do not know anyone who can explain it well. I have read their scholars. I have sat at their feet. I do not understand the Trinity well. Certainly not fully. But it still came out in my opinion. And it really is. Why do we believe it? Because we can't look at the Bible and not have it there. We believe in the Trinity. The Bible is very clear. The Father, the Son, the Spirit... They're divine, they do the same things, they're worthy of worship, and yet God is one God. And John 14 is just one of many scripture passages in which God makes it clear that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one, the Trinity. He makes that clear without making it fully clear how that works. Does that make sense? God chooses how much he's going to reveal. Dr. Unger pointed out, this is very hard on our pride. 
And many groups, this is exactly where they've gone astray. They've said, no, I'm not going to believe in something that I cannot fully understand and stake my life on it. And so they redefine. And this diagram, I, I like to use this periodically, is when we talk about e- beliefs that are essential and then important, peripheral, and speculative. And what Christian theologians and scholars will do is they'll look at a group and they'll say, well, do they have the essential stuff about the cross and about who Jesus is and who God is? And this is often where groups will go astray and they'll redefine who Jesus is and make him a created being or this or that or the other thing. Because it's the moments that we humbly say, I believe as much has been revealed or hasn't been revealed to me. We all pride ourselves on fully understanding our investment with God or a potential spouse before we commit. And we should study and understand as much as we can about God and what it means to follow Jesus before we commit. Jesus said, count the cost. But there are mysteries that God has not yet revealed more fully, and the Trinity is one of them. And it is of extreme importance. Why is the Trinity so important? Because if seeing Jesus is not seeing the Father, then Jesus lies. And if Jesus is not divine, when he was on the cross, he did not have the capacity to take all of our sins upon him and receive the punishment they deserve. Nor did he have then, and if he was not divine, he did not have an indestructible life that the grave could not hold, and then he would not have conquered death in the resurrection. And he did not currently have the ability to always be with you. Always. Always. As he promised that he would be. Nor to intercede constantly for us in the presence of the Father. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. I do not fully understand it, but I have taken my life. And that means you can trust Jesus in everything he says. So let's just look at one more concept in this point that's dwelling. Go back to verse 6. Go back to Kevin's point. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for people in the ancient world, they were just fighting over that. Christians would never have been persecuted and thrown to the lions by the Romans if they would have merely said, oh, it's just another religion, you know, one of many, you can buy ten different ways, you can get to God, no problem. He said, that's not what the Lord said. He said, you're the only way to deal with the sins in your life. Now, these are also, as you know, fighting words in our culture today, aren't they? People consider us arrogant to say that this is the truth. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. They think that we're saying that we're smarter than them. We are not. I keep saying that, but it's precise because we're not that smart. And some of them are much more brilliant than we are. We say, we're not that smart. We just believe what we've been told because we believe that Jesus is God. And he's God and we're God. He knows we are. And if he says no, about who thinks their way through this actually takes the Holy Spirit to win over any of our hearts. Let me illustrate. Let's say that you live on a street with ten people, okay? And you go to the people and go, oh man, this is awful, awful smelling and abdomen. And the first person says, well, you are in such luck. I've been wearing this organic soup, and if you eat this, it'll take care of it. 
And you go to another neighbor and you say, oh, man, I've got this issue and I've got this water. I've had special minerals stored here and some other things. Can you fix it? I'm serious about it. Blah, blah, blah. And you go to another person and they go, you know, really, it's all in the mind. If you will just think positively, you'll be healed in no time. But you also have one person on your, on your block who's an oncologist. And they say, why don't you come to my office and talk? And they run tests and they say, I've got some great news. You have a kind of cancer, but it is 100% curable. They cure it every time. I've treated over 1,000 people in this. Every one of them cured. Let's take care of it. However, if you don't take care of it, within five years, it'll kill you. What would you listen to? I'm not saying that someone might not pray for you. You might not be supernaturally healed, but barring that, would you go with your expert? Jesus said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, God knows what it will take for a sinful human being to be reconciled to him. People who are, are guessing or just wishful thinking about how to take care of the sin in our souls, they don't know. God knows. God's the one who knows. We probably got about 50 million or so. That's just a guesstimate on my part. Americans who consider themselves to be spiritual, but they've made up kind of their own way of how they think they can cure the cancer in their soul. And they think that that's kind and generous and wonderful if they could say everybody could kind of make up their own way about how to become reconciled with God. It's not about being smart. It's not about coming up with, I mean, some of the plans that people come up with are beautiful. I've got people like that in my own family. God knows what it takes to be reconciled to Him. It takes Jesus suffering horribly on the cross for our sins, dying and conquering death by rising again. Anything less trivializes His sacrifice. Anything less makes everything that He did unnecessary. See, Christianity is exclusive. And it, we say there is only one treatment for the cancer of sin in our souls. God's paid for it on the cross. It's the only way that it can be paid for. All that it requires that we believe. But it's also one of the most inclusive of all religions because it says everyone is invited and welcome and God wants everyone to come. And that his treatment is the same for everyone and he pays for it all. It's a free gift. The same thing is required of everybody. Believe. Today, many people in our country make the complaint that Christianity is exclusive. It's not exclusive. It's just simply like if you had cancer and there was one treatment that worked, you'd do that treatment. It's not exclusive to say that the organic fruit didn't get a fix. That's just what makes sense. It's actually not kind and beautiful and generous and gracious to make up your own version of what will reconcile you to God and spread that around and then drop it back. told a story about two men. A poor beggar named Lazarus and a rich man whose name we don't know. And the rich man lived in opulence and drank wine and ate meat and all kinds of things. And the beggar Lazarus was had covered in sores and was outside his gate just kind of there in the dirt begging and wished he just had the crumbs that would fall off of the rich man's table. Well, Lazarus died and he went to a good place next to Father Abraham's as he said. And the rich man also died and he went to a bad place of torment. And uh, he could see far away Lazarus 
next to Father Abraham, and I said, Father Abraham, I can't imagine if you could get this finger in the water and, and feel my toenail. He said, it's under the water. Do you hear it? And Abraham said, you know, in your life, you have good stuff. In, in his life, he's suffering. And now he's in a good place, and he kind of got what he deserved. Um, and besides, there's this great big chasm between us. I, I, he can't go over there. And so the rich man said, well, would, then would you at least send him back to my brothers at my father's house? I've got five brothers and warn them about this place. And Abraham said, you know, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them read them. And the rich man said, no, but if, if someone would go back from the dead and tell them, they would believe. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. Jesus did rise from the dead, very convincingly. But many people are, are still not convinced. And instead of sending someone coming back from the dead to talk to him, you know who God sends? He sends you empowered by his spirit. And the way he does this, you go as his representative, and, and the best way, he just start loving people and serving them and listening to them and being a friend. And when the time comes, maybe praying for them, maybe sharing what God's doing in your life. But relying not on, not putting a burden on yourself and saying, oh, I, I just don't, you know, I'm going to just go with God and see what the Holy Spirit does. And you might be just amazed. I've asked all of us to be thinking about one or two people this summer that we can just kind of, somebody that maybe they're, they're not yet convinced about Jesus. Maybe they've never even heard that much. Or maybe they've had a bad experience with Christians. Or maybe they heard this thing about Jesus being the only way and they think we're all uh, arrogant. You know, when, when, when people treat you that way, you, what's our tendency? I can't do something about that. God wants you to lean in and engage and show that, no, you don't think you know all that much. You just know that Jesus is God, and so if he said something, you believe it, but you just love on him. Have him out for dinner. Go to movies. Go out to coffee and, and, and be a listener. Today's passage, I think that Jesus is frustrated with. Just how slow the disciples were to understand who he really was. And you know, we're not better or worse than those disciples. They're shown with all of their flaws, all of their mistakes, all of their misunderstandings, so we can go, oh, I could be one of those. Jesus loves them, and he wants people like them and people like you in his family. He wants to have a love relationship with you where he, the Father, and the Spirit, they live with you where you'll feel God's presence and you'll receive real and supernatural help from the Holy Spirit. Power that He will pour God's love into your heart and then He'll go out with you 